Hey everyone, Dave Broadbeck here. The lecture you're about to hear is for psychology, also biology, uh, 3506 neuropharmacology, and it's for the, uh, I guess, winter. <laughs> So, uh, we finished up the stuff on participants and vaccines, and then if you have any questions about the tests coming up, uh, we can do that. So, I think last time we were talking about the effects and um, the idea of being basically these drugs feel a lot like alcohol, and in fact, they have very similar effects to alcohol. So, things like confusion, decreasing visual acuity, divided attention becomes difficult. I talked a little bit about that the other day. Um, reaction time increases with dose. There's effect on acquisition, but not on recall. Now, so what happens is you can't learn things that well on the drug, but you'll do okay remembering things. So this is a, these drugs are actually great for... Uh, if someone's having a, I think I mentioned this, the idea of going in for, say, chemotherapy, which is unpleasant, typically. Uh, so if you're getting cancer treatments, a lot of times the drugs are very unpleasant. So people may be given a diazepam before they start treatment, before they go into the hospital. So they'll be, in fact, often told, take this on the way in, right? And then what happens is they don't learn... One of the big problems, in fact, with chemotherapy is that people that associate, associative learning, associate the hospital with sickness. So you get there and you start feeling lousy. It's not just that the drugs make you feel lousy. They actually make you feel lousy by, oh, this is a place where I get sick. You basically get an association. So if you're given the drug before you get there, so you might say something like, and it's different, diazepam, the peak's about 30 minutes in. So you might say, okay, around 20 minutes before you come in, Take the drug. Okay? And then what happens is you have trouble learning, and I'm acquiring learning, so acquisition. You have trouble learning that to associate the effects of the chemotherapy with the hospital setting. So it's not just, a lot of people think that people are given things like diazepam to calm them down because they're going to have chemotherapy and it's unpleasant, a little anxiety inducing. It's not, that's in this case almost a side effect. What you're trying to do is get people to not learn to associate a cancer treatment center with being sick. It just makes it a little less unpleasant for the person. Make sense? It's a nice usage of these drugs. It's also, uh, other drugs are used too for this kind of thing. They're very common to use as. Uh, you get a hangover from these, and they, it feels like a hangover from alcohol. Don't drive a car. <laughs> so basically, you know, if your reaction time's increased, you get a hangover, all these things, you shouldn't be driving the car. All right. So, you get more exploration in lab animals. You take rats, you put them on an open field, which again, as I've mentioned, is usually you know, a four-way sheet of plywood with 
a grid drawn on it that has, it used to be you'd have people count how many times the rack across the, the little lines. Now what you do is you have photo beams and just count how many photo beams are across. You can do it automatically. And it's sort of an odd thing because you think these things are tranquilizers. But that, again, like a lot of drugs, we're talking about inhibiting inhibition. It's disinhibition. You're basically reducing anxiety. These are anti-anxiety drugs, both benzodiazepines and barbiturates. So what you're doing is you're re reducing the anxiety in the rat. Typically, rats don't like to run around out in the open because they get eaten. Okay? This is probably an anti-anxiety effect. Interestingly, you get an increase in FR responding and a decrease in FI responding. FR responding is you train a rat to push a bar, let's say, 10 times. That's an FR10. And after the 10th response, it gets a piece of food. That's what FR is, fixed ratio, ratio of responses to reinforcer. Anybody here taking learning right now? Anybody taking learning? So you may have talked about this, or if you haven't, you will. FI responding, fixed interval responding, is the first response after a given amount of time is reinforced. Okay? So it's the first response after a given amount of time. So let's say you had an FI 10. So you have, you have a reinforcement. Then the timer starts 10 seconds, and the first response after 10 seconds gives reinforcement. So you understand the FI thing? So it's not respond, uh, It's not giving reinforcement every 10 seconds. It's the first response after 10 seconds have elapsed. So the animal's task in a lot of respects here, though B.F. Skinner, saying you can hear him rolling around in his grave, wouldn't say this, but is the animal has to keep track of time. The, animal has to, the animal's internal clock, short-term internal clock, has to be able to keep track of 10 seconds because it's stupid to just, it's you know not optimal really to, just push the bar, you should push the bar a lot when you get right around 10 seconds. And in fact, uh, you get a really nice, it's called the FI scallop. It's like this. Oh yeah, I was forgetting. Draw pictures. So what you typically get on fixed interval responding is something like this. And those little that, there, 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 that's where reinforcements can be. One of the neat things you can do, in fact, is you can leave to test if the animal's keeping track of time well, is you can take out the reinforcement, leave what have what's called an empty trial. Okay? And with an empty trial, the reinforcement, if you sum a whole bunch of them, looks oh, not the reinforcement, the responses look like this. Like a normal curve. And it will shift over depending on the speed of the animal's clock. So you get a decrease in responding. This may be then, because this is about timing, maybe that's a timing effect of some sort. The FR responding, maybe that's an anti-anxiety thing that respond more. And the FI part, maybe that's a timing effect. So they respond less, and it may be they're having a little more trouble keeping track of time. It's not, though, that it shifted the clock over. Though there are some data suggesting that 
their clocks have slowed. So if their clocks have slowed, what would happen to the to the peak place of responding? Should it be closed? Be less than 10 seconds, let's say it's ended by 10, or more than 10 seconds. Yeah, sure. More? Yeah, it should be more because it's taken longer. It feels like the clock, the ticks of the clock have taken longer. Okay. <coughs> and there are some data suggesting that with this stuff, but it's not, there's not a whole lot. There's stuff with the opiates and things like that that definitely show it. Questions about that? Now you get an increase in punished behavior. Punishment is unpleasant. What happens is the animal, let's say, is a pretty pretty simple thing to do. What you do is you have a, a box set up or an open field set up where you have half of, half of it is painted black and half of it is painted white. Okay, and then when the rat goes into the white part, for example, um, the floor is electrified and it gets a little shock. Now it's not like it's so electrified that it hurts the animal and it never moves again. <coughs> that would be counterproductive. It's unpleasant. <coughs> and in fact, when you set up experiments like this, the way that I know whenever I did it, I remember doing this years ago when I was a TA for a learning lab back in grad school, the way we would get the students to do it to see how much current they should push put through it, you'd say, put your hand on it. Do you feel a tingle? Okay, that's as much as you want to give. Just a little tingle. Remember, this thing is a hundredth or a thousandth your size, but also just a little tingle. It's not, it's unpleasant, that's all. Rats learn very quickly, oh, avoid the white part. Stay over here in the black part. That's easy. I can do that. And they do it. And then you give them these drugs, and it's like, uh, I'm going to go over here. Oh, I don't like that. Go back. So you get an increase in punished behavior. Again, I think this is probably an anti-anxiety effect. And which is also disinhibition. Extrapolating this to humans, this should tell you something. You'll probably make stupid decisions when you take too much of these things. Okay? There's these dissociation type effects. That's what I'm talking about. When I mentioned the idea of acquisition effects and not learn, uh, not recall effects, that's what I'm talking about here, dissociation. You also get it in, in lab animals. So you get exactly the same effects here where they can remember something, but they cannot learn, they have trouble learning new things. Okay. Yeah, sure. Does that mean if you introduce the um, like white black box under the influence, and then you brought them back outside, they yeah. would not be able to associate? They the would have more shot. trouble. It's not like they can't associate, right? It's, it's, it take, they take them a lot more trials to learn. Yeah, exactly. Or teaching them to push a bar, uh, how many bar, bar presses they have to get. It's going to take them longer to learn, to get to the point where they have to steady responding at, at uh, every, uh, well, F, F, FI, sorry, uh, FR you get pretty steady responding. Or FI learning the 10 seconds. Yep. So that happens in lab animals too. Shouldn't surprise us. All right, you'll develop tolerance to these things pretty quickly. In fact, acute tolerance develops almost right away. So the first tablet of diazepam you take has more effect than the second one. So acute tolerance is within about of taking the drug.
Chronic tolerance develops first really to the depressant effects. So the depressant effects are things that make you, make you sleep. The anti-anxiety effects come next. This is in people. So again, now tolerance just means it takes longer to get the effect that you're interested in. Barbiturates have cross-tolerance with benzodiazepines and vice versa. So if you have tolerance to phenobarbital, you'll have tolerance to benzodiazepines. To, to, to diazepam. That makes sense. Thinking back to back to that GABA receptor complex and how these drugs actually work, this makes a great deal of sense. Right? There's actually some cross-tolerance between barbiturates and alcohol. Again, thinking back, remember I showed you that one slide that actually had an alcohol receptor on the GABA complex. So again, this shouldn't surprise us. These drugs, and, and, and the MEOS, the, the, the microsomal ethanol oxidizing, oxidizing system, is actually used to metabolize these drugs. So again, it shouldn't be surprising that if you're using the same system to metabolize the drug, and you are targeting the GABA system partially, with alcohol, and definitely with benzodiazepines and barbiturates, it shouldn't be surprising to cross tolerance. Okay. What's interesting here is cross tolerance usually only happens within a class of drugs. So one barbiturate, another barbiturate. One benzodiazepine, another One opiate, another opiate. But the interesting thing is here, it's Barbiturates, benzodiazepines, and alcohol are all different drugs. You can get cross tolerance. You get almost complete cross tolerance between benzodiazepines and barbiturates. All right. So now the unpleasant parts. First for barbiturates, REM rebound. So you get REM effects, so you're going to get REM rebound. Draw uh, tremors. Can't hold your hand steady. Basically, think about this. These are all the opposites. Typically, and typically, withdrawal symptoms are the opposites of the effects that you find interesting on the drug. So, insomnia. Well, it used to put you to sleep. Uh, nausea. Feelings in your stomach. Uh, seizures and hallucinations. These are a lot less common. I'm going from the most common to the least common. And these are all about what? They're about being more. That's sort of what I'm Arousal. Resonazepines, agitation. So again, if it calmed you down and made you less anxious, now it makes you more anxious. Depression, pain, the DTs, just like alcohol. Uh, REM rebound again. And the interesting thing is here you have a two-stage withdrawal uh, from benzodiazepines. The first stage is the... sedative parts of things. So the agitation is going to be the first thing. And a little bit of insomnia, probably. 
The second stage then comes down to the anti-anxiety stuff. So you're going to get a little more anxious. This is not uncommon with life. Sometimes it's called, the book talks about this high dose and low dose, the two stages. And if you've only been taking the low dose, let's say you've been taking them uh, as my friend does for epilepsy, she takes diazepam, it's basically simply she would not go through the high dose thing because her dose is low enough that she doesn't actually get sleepy from it. So she would only have the, and well, one of her also withdrawal symptoms, of course, would be epileptic seizures. So let's not talk about that. But in if you were taking them as anti-anxiety drugs, you'd be taking very small amounts. And you'd have things like REM rebound, stuff like that. But you're not going to get being awake all night in some because you didn't, weren't taking enough to make you sleep. The idea when you're being given these things clinically for things like epilepsy is we're taking it, giving you this to stop seizures, but nothing else. So it, for some people, I know with my friend, uh, it, it took them a few months to find the right dose where she could function daily and do things like drive a car. She wasn't driving in the meantime, believe um, So you have the right dose for it to, to, to function during the day, but not have these other effects. You have to get a really nice small dose Works very well, by the way. Okay, what patterns of self-administration? Um, most people don't choose to take these. So this, these are well, these are not common drugs of abuse. People do not, as a rule, today take these drugs. They were much more common in the seventies. Most people, when given a choice between would you like alcohol, would you like cocaine, would you like marijuana, would you like Valium, most people don't go, oh, I'll take Valium. Okay. Except for a friend of mine in high school, but that's a whole different matter. One of the strangest things that every you know, person just says to me, I did the lock of a sudden, want a Valium? No. No, I don't. I don't want a Valium. Why would I want a value? People that take these things usually have a history of alcohol or other sedative use. And in fact, if you like, if you have a liking reaction to alcohol, and you were then given these drugs, you would say, "Oh, this is like being drunk. I actually do like this." But when you don't know anything about these drugs, you're not going to say, oh, I'll take a, yeah, sure, I'll take some phenobarbital. That doesn't happen. But if you find out what the effect is, you'll have a liking reaction to them if you have a liking reaction to alcohol. And most people have a liking reaction to alcohol. So that seems a little contradictory. So any questions about that? And it makes sense that if you like one, you'd like the other. They act very similarly, and the effects are very similar. One of the problems that often happens is what's called iatrogenic use or, or a doctor shopping. It doesn't happen so much anymore, which is nice because pharmacies now are all sort of connected, and doctors are all connected. 
but a common thing done by people who abuse these drugs is you show up at a doctor and you say, I'm really, really anxious. And I really, I'm having trouble sleeping. Oh, here's some value. Here's a prescription. It's a little harder to do in Canada with our horrible socialized medicine that is just awful and it will kill everybody and we're communists. I'm being sarcastic. Um, it's a little harder here because, of course, they had your medication records. A little easier in places like the States. It's still pretty hard because now the idea of medical records being shared between pharmacies and doctors is much more common. It didn't used to be a thing. Everything used to be written down. It was a crazy time. Now you go to the doctor and you hand him a card and they swipe it and you go in. And all your medical records go. Now there are ways to do this. You go to a free clinic where they don't take, they don't worry about any ID or anything like that. And you show up and you use a false name. It can be done. It's a little more complicated, which is good. But up until, geez, the early 90s, it was much easier to just get pills. Not, so, not as big a problem today. The street use is interesting here. So, so if, instead of going to a doctor and another doctor and another doctor and trying to get it because you have a problem with these drugs, you can just buy them from some guy in the corner. Right? And maybe you can't get opiates because, I don't know. You can get these. They calm you down. You can take these drugs to smooth out a speed rush. Speed can be pretty harsh. Amphetamine. So to smooth out your buzz, take a Valium. And end up dead. Um, this is dangerous as hell, right? A lot of times, again, as I talked about this with alcohol and caffeine, you know when you've had too much of drug A, when you have certain behavioral effects, you can feel them. Well, now you're not going to feel them as much, so you'll take maybe more speed. Oh, this has gone away quite a bit, street use, in the last maybe five years, because opiates are great. You can get them anywhere, he said sarcastically. But I mean, really, it's the case now that the opiate crisis in, 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 in North America um, has replaced the sort of usually benzodiazepine problem, which we would have called a crisis before. And it's easy to get opiates. Didn't used to be as easy to get them because all you could get was heroin, morphine, or codeine. Now there's so many great ones out there that are so easy to get. It's like a buffet. A buffet of depressant drugs that will kill you. <laughs> but it's still a buffet. Like, it's easily possible. Ten years ago, it was hard to get opiates. So you get these. Five years ago, even really. Now it's really pretty easy to get opiates. And there's a whole story behind that. We talk about opiates. We talk about the opiate crisis and where it comes from. And it's um, horrible and insidious. It's 
said that. All right, what are some bad effects here? There are definitely birth defects for barbiturates. Um, benzodiazepines maybe, but they don't seem to be as big an effect. Now, I'm not saying you should be taking these drugs, but the thing is, when you get the right dose for something like epilepsy, it's probably safer for a pregnant woman to take the drugs under a doctor's care with the right dose than it is not taking them pregnant. Right. Newborns go through withdrawal. Yay! Because these drugs pass the, through the placental barrier. The baby's getting it too. Welcome to planet Earth. The DTs will wear off shortly. They can have demasculinizing effects on a fetus. Lower the production of testosterone. One of the problems that happens with people that are like adults, like, you know, not babies that are just born, is aggression and violence, because basically we're talking about disinhibition here. People tend to get in fights. People tend to do violent things when they take these drugs. It's not good. So again, this should remind you a lot of alcohol. The LV50 shows no tolerance. And pick, that's very common. So the lethal dose for 50% of the population does not show tolerance. But the effective dose does. Oh, that's bad. So you need effective, lethal dose is up here. Effective dose, because you're getting tolerance, goes here, here, here. Oh, it keeps going up. You need more drug, more drug, more drug, more drug. You're dead! So this is a problem. Again, these aren't drugs so much that are abused as they used to be because other things have replaced them, because opiates have replaced them. These are not drugs of, uh, street drugs of choice so much anymore. So it sounds odd to think that you know people would overdose on these drugs, you know, get to the LD50, because why would you wouldn't you be taking these under a doctor's care? And typically, yes. They used to be much more common street drugs than they are now. <coughs> So you can overdose, basically. And more easily the more you take, because the you get tolerance to the EV50. So treatment, um, first people of course have to go through withdrawal, which is unpleasant, but it's it's a two-stage thing, as I mentioned. It may take a few weeks. Um, so in other words, you have to go through detox. Detox basically is this notion you don't take any drugs at all. It's not treatment. It's uh, you've got to get there first before we can then start treating you for having a, a drug problem. This is typically, one would hope, <laughs> the doctor's care. A lot of 12-step programs here. Uh, there are groups, so you hear about Alcoholics Anonymous. There's what's called Narcotics Anonymous, which is basically the same thing except it's for uh, street drugs. I mentioned contracting the other day when I talked about alcohol, the idea of you sign an agreement with 
psychologist, let's say a psychologist who's carrier under, saying, if, and I'll be tested every week, and if the drugs are in my system, we will tell this person. And then it keeps going up to the point where eventually you tell somebody that you don't, really don't want to tell. Maybe an employer. Maybe your mom. Very often the very top one is you're going to tell your mom. Because it doesn't matter how old you are, you never want to call your mom. Oh, they're a drug problem. It's just not something you want to do. I mean, I'm 52 years old. If I had to call my mother and say, you know, I've got a drug problem, I would be the worst thing ever. things with these drugs, with really any street drug, generally. See, if you're under a doctor's care and you're taking these drugs and you're taking too much of them, and then they help you off of them, you're typically not having so much that it's going to be a huge problem compared to if you're taking them to get high all the time, to get the euphoria and the liking reaction. At this point, you're taking the drug illegally. It's hard to get people to admit they take these drugs. So the effectiveness of treatment programs is a tough thing to measure. A lot of times people go into treatment and go into rehab, basically, right? And they don't want to talk about it. And part of the agreement is this is an anonymous thing. So it's really hard to measure what kind of programs work and how well they work. Right? That's going to be hard to do. The idea of contracting, I believe, started with Valium abuse. Um, but, and it seems like it's pretty effective. The problem is, as I said, getting people to actually sign up for a research study when they're doing something that's illegal. Because getting the amount of the drugs you need to be taking these things recreationally means you're not getting them from a pharmacy, typically. You're getting them from the Hells Angels or Tony Soprano. I started watching The Sopranos again last night. All I do is just re-watch TV shows. I watch hardly anything new. It's like, well, I'm going to watch The Sopranos again. I've only seen it 43 times. So you got to get stuff from bad people. All right. So questions on this, this stuff?
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>